You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Natalie sat there with her partner and her son, wincing, exhausted, and in pain. I don't know how I'd do any of this without these two, she told me. Natalie was in her final months of life after living for years with a slow-growing, untreatable cancer, which was filling up her abdomen with itself, cementing her intestines in place until they were immobile and functioned only to cause her painful bloating. Her body was covered in scars and tubes. She had an implanted IV in her upper chest so she could receive intravenous nutrition to keep her alive. She had a large tube inserted through her upper abdomen directly into her stomach so that intestinal fluids and bile that her body still made without fail could drain into a bag so she didn't have to vomit them. Her abdomen was thin from malnutrition, lumpy to the touch with tumor, and crossed by two large scars from a surgery she had had years ago when her son was only 12 and there was hope her cancer could be cured by an operation. Natalie, which is not her real name of course, was just a little bit older than me. I was one of her doctors and I wasn't sure how I was going to be able to help her today. There were no more options to treat her cancer, let alone cure it. We were giving her intravenous nutrition to keep her alive, which which was helping her gain extra months of life, which were very, very precious to her. I had her on strong pain medicine, which helped, but she still suffered daily, and my attempts to increase or change the medicines only caused her to feel sleepy all the time in a way that really wasn't worth it to her. We spoke a bit about everything. I told her I wasn't sure I had any ideas of how to help her today, and she just laughed at me and said, that's okay. I don't know how I'd do any of this without these two. And then she asked me a technical question about how they were bandaging her stomach tube. We are our bodies. Our bodies are beautiful, and our bodies break. We are animals, mammals. We gestate our young deep within us. We feed them with our bodies, with our hands or our breasts. We bathe, wipe, dress, carry and cradle our young. If we are lucky to survive into adulthood, we spend our lives making sure our bodies are warm, fed, safe, and loved. And despite all our knowledge, our technology, our distractions, our media, and even our very, very noble ideas and ideals, fundamentally everything comes down to those bodies and keeping them warm, fed, safe, and loved, or not. And and that is at the heart of our borders, our prisons, our neighborhoods, our hospitals, our public bathrooms, and our decisions as a society about who has health insurance and who flies around in a private jet. And in some ways, this is the most mundane observation in the world. Nearly everyone who becomes a parent feels that same intense animal love for the fragile, beautiful, tiny body of their baby. That feeling is commonplace, it's mundane, yet it's also the most profound and meaningful experience many of us will have. 
Most of us will care for someone we love who is chronically or terminally ill. We will touch them, clean them, feed them, hold them up, hold them tight. And unless we die suddenly, we ourselves will receive such care one day. And so it's forever interesting to me that I forget this all the time. As a community member and a political being, I get caught up in all of my noble and fancy ideas. And as a doctor, I can see patients as being broken, as being a list of diseases and conditions that I'm obliged to address, ticking off one after another, instead of seeing people as a beloved body, scars, tubes, and all, a member of a community and a family. So I helped Natalie get up to the exam table, and with her partner, uh, they showed me how they clean and change the dressing around her tube. Together, our hands touched her body. I watched her partner joke and make Natalie laugh as we changed the dressing, her scarred belly moving up and down with her guffaws. Natalie's body was breaking, as all our bodies do, but she wasn't broken. Her body was loved, she was loved. Come, let us worship. It all started with that movie about the Dalmatians. You remember the 101 little hyperactive white dogs with black spots filled with mischief, always outsmarting the human beings with their wild antics and their agility and their clever use of language. Like most kids of the 60s, I was inundated, like many of us, with anthropomorphic versions of animals that made them so appealing. And I wanted desperately to leave my tribe and join those tribes. I wanted to join the tribe of Yogi Bear, the tribe of Bullwinkle, Roadrunner, and my favorite snarky role model, Bugs Bunny. The main reason I sought a species reassignment was because they had fur. And by seven, I became increasingly irritated by the idiotic adults in my life, ignoring the fact that our bodies were not as sophisticated as the cartoons that I watched on that beautiful RCA floor model television. <laughs> so I came up with a plan to trade my human body for that of a Dalmatian. So I got my white Sunday gloves, true story, white Sunday gloves, I found the shoe polish, <laughs> and I made dots on all the gloves, both pairs, and I did it with great care, and I vowed never to take them off. My mother being the progressive mother that she was in the early 60s there, she let me hold my hands up like this during the bath. I slept with them and I barked every now and then to remind people of my firm commitment to species reassignment as a Dalmatian. But soon enough, like all good things, my gloves were confiscated 
by some of those various authorities that lived in my home. So I requested then a teddy bear coat. And this was a barrel-shaped roll of fur that was featured in maybe some of the design statements of that unfortunate fashion era called the early 70s. <laughs> Finally, I had more fur. So in, in, later on in field trips to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, I spent hours staring at the dioramas trying to understand what happened to our fur. I looked at the evolutionary timeline of the human body and we clearly have gotten less hairy, but why? I was on a mission to find out. So when we went to our summer place in Atlantic City, I took my brownie camera with me and I was convinced that I could find clues on the beach. I was going to document like a scientist. So when my father, got the pictures back that I had taken from Woolworths, he was stunned that I had taken dozens and dozens of pictures of men with hairy backs, <laughs> hairy chests, hair coming out of the nostril, you know that kind of hair, and the hair that comes out of the ears. Some of you know what I'm talking about, you plucked it this morning, right? Yeah, that kind of hairy picture which meant I had to get really close to these people to take these pictures on the beach. I told my father that I was doing research for the American Museum of Natural History. That's why I took those pictures. My father says, this is enough. The Dalmatian gloves, the teddy bear coat, and now you're taking pictures of our neighbor, Mr. Scalafani, on the beach. This has got to stop. You need to read some books about bodies and evolution and change to move on in another direction. So I immediately devoured everything he bought, every book he brought in the house. I could read about human evolution. I loved everything about these amazing bodies that emerged from the savanna, that adapted in rainforests, that changed in the desert, that died off in caves and repurposed themselves to reach every altitude on Earth. These amazing bodies who make tools, who created language and design and culture, who invent, who solve problems, who nurture one another, who have a reflective consciousness, humans that take months to reproduce, humans that live in bodies that look like the most vulnerable of all living creatures, but with 1,300 cubic centimeters of brain, we have responded to every external stimuli through adaptive radiation to cover the entire Earth. What a story. I shared this excitement of evolution with my grandmother, my Nana, on the way to the Kingdom Hall one day. <laughs> I could barely contain myself because I had just learned about another 25 million year old hominid. And when I went up on the stage to practice knocking on doors, which we did all the time in the Kingdom Hall, to bother you. <laughs> I blurted out, for some unforsaken reason, I blurted out everything I knew about Ramapithecus. And the presiding elder pulled me off the stage and says, I don't know what you're talking about, Karen, but this Rama, whoever, is not for the Kingdom Hall. There's no place for that kind of thinking here. I said, well, I guess I don't belong here either. 
And that was the end of my term as a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> Which I did miss because I did like getting those quarters from selling the watchtower and pocketing them for candy. <laughs> A lot goes on behind the scenes of the JWs, let me tell you. I can tell you stories. <laughs> A few years later in college, and of course I went off to Boston University to study what? Prehistoric archaeology and geology. And while in college, I found Unitarian Universalism. And I knew I had found my tribe, finally. My cozy place, a place for believers in human evolution, a people of reason, a people who believe in science, a people who read, a people whose curiosity does not let the latest discovery in scientific American or National Geographic go unnoticed or unreferenced at coffee hour. Whether we like it or not, friends, we are the children of the Enlightenment with all of the illiberal and liberal tenets that accompany it. But over the decades, natural selection has caused many of us to be stuck in that linear progressive diorama in the museum of the human body becoming ever more upright and, yes, less hairy. We have come to look at hominid and human evolution as having a beginning with Ramapithecus and Lucy and having a middle with the Australopithecines and having an end with Homo, Homo erectus, and now us, Homo sapien sapien. But evolution is dynamic. We may not be seeing macroevolution and the rise and fall of new human species, but we are seeing microevolutionary changes within and between breeding populations that show up in places like the amount of oxygen in our bloodstreams and markers on our communal DNA. But friends, does evolution now mean just the slow grind of natural selection spreading desirable genes? Or are we at a crossroads where we might be evolving and moving to amplify our own human potential through the manipulation of genes, culture, and technology? Are we moving into the future of becoming transhuman or posthuman? Are we there? Australian researchers found a method of removing the blood of patients with cancer, modifying their white blood cells with cancer-fighting genes, and then putting the blood back in. Researchers at Harvard have successfully taken embryonic stem cells that were not yet differentiated, grew them into inner ear cells, and transplanted them to chickens where they repaired inner ear damage. Think on that for a minute while I drink my water. The New York Times reported from the Pop Tech co Conference on the growing number of scientists that are personally looking forward to achieving 500-year lifespans. The US company, Seismic, has created powered clothing. Worn under your regular clothes, these clothes under our clothes, these little suits, they mimic the biomechanics of the human body and give users, typically older folks, discrete strength when getting out of a chair or climbing stairs or standing for long periods. 
You're laughing, but you want one, I know. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. It's not on Amazon yet. I already checked. <laughs> Think about it, though. The FDA recently approved the use of a new drug that keeps people awake for days without side effects. Transhumanism is the idea that humans can use reason to transcend the limitations of the human condition. A quest that is rooted both in ancient pan-cultural expressions of rationalism, atheism, and humanism, and in the very desire of almost every religious tradition to use magic to transcend sickness, aging, and mortality. Most religions offer healing, an afterlife, or immortality altered states of consciousness and a variety of superpowers, levitation, astral projection, or psychic powers. Many religious traditions also promise a coming millennial promised land, a paradise in which human existence will be incomparable to anything that we can imagine now. In the coming age in which the next Buddha is thought to arrive, human beings will have thousand-year lifespans. In the Christian tradition, the righteous will be boldly resurrected and live forever at the right hand of the Lord. The persistence of religious traditions seeking to transcend the human condition shows that this desire to conquer sickness, aging, suffering, and even death is one of the most fundamental aspirations of homo sapien culture. At the same time, rationalist, humanist is, rationalist humanism is also an ancient human impulse. Humanism can be found in the earliest recorded schools of European philosophy, Asian philosophy, African philosophy, even in Timbuktu, Mali, where the oldest library in the world barely still stands in the desert. In the 14th and 15th centuries, a group emerged in Europe who called themselves the humanists. But get this, they were practicing Catholics who believed that human beings were such special creations of God that to celebrate human beings and their powers and creation was to celebrate God. These Catholic humanists condemned the theology of original sin and instead argued that humans should become more like God. An Italian humanist philosopher, Piccolo del Mirandola, says, to the human is granted the power contained in your intellect and judgment to be reborn into the higher forms of divine. Renaissance humanists encouraged human beings to rely on empirical observations, scientific methods, rather than religious tradition and authority of dogma. The 18th and 19th centuries also began to see flowering of scientific medicine and proposal for technological means to overcome death. My fellow Philadelphian and birthday buddy, Benjamin Franklin, who I have a very strange relationship with, he said and did some of the most amazing things. And one of the most amazing I ever found out about was just this last couple of weeks. 
He's referring to experiments in which he revived flies that he had drowned in wine. <laughs> Founder of our nation. <laughs> Drowning flies in wine to revive them. And he says about this, I wish it were possible to invent a method of embalming drowned persons in such a manner that they might be recalled to life at any period, however distant, for having a very ardent desire to see and observe the state of America a hundred years hence. I should prefer to any ordinary death being immersed with a few friends in a cask of Madeira until that time than to be recalled to life by the solar warmth of my dear country. You gotta give it to Ben. And of course that lifelong Unitarian Charles Darwin whose theory of evolution turned the world on its head, opening up the possibility that the current condition of human beings was only a temporary stop between a prior lower level as they said then and a future more advanced state. Transhumanism can be seen as an extension of humanism. Humanist believes that humans matter. We may not be perfect, but we can make things better by promoting rational thinking, freedom, equity, democracy, tolerance, and concern for our fellow human bodies and beings. Transhumanists emphasize that we have the potential to become, to become. Just as we use rational means to improve the human condition as it is and the external world as it is, we can also use such means to improve ourselves, the human organism. Now, some of you are already benefiting from these developments, those of you with those new knees and those new hips out there, and stem cell research, and human genetic therapy, and embryonic screening, and end-of-life decisions, and enhancement medicine. We are already benefiting from these transhuman augmentations. It's not necessarily, though, that we are committed to accelerating evolution. Transhumanists don't believe in just creating more opportunities for evolution, because it's a natural selection that's going to do that. Their goal, however, is to promote the idea that we should have a right to use technologies to achieve radical life extension, intelligence enhancement, and to control our emotions. And that is, the possible, that is possible to construct society in which humans and post-humans and AIs and enhanced animals live in peace. Think about it. If we create the institutions and the values to sustain progress and defend diversity, transhumanists believe our children may be able to enjoy a world of plenty with indefinite lifespans and the elimination of mental and physical limitations. Now, of course, these ideas, as they are probably right now, meeting with some stiff resistance on one side, uh, and on the extreme side, are the religious conservatives who see transhumanism and, and all the ambitions associated with as hubris, playing God, tampering with intelligence, human nature, or mortality. They believe limits our spirituality. They argue that augmenting the human body is not in God's plan. 
It is not natural. Now, there are a lot of ideas and positions in the middle, but on another direction, there's sort of a left-leaning, what I call, and many people are starting to call the bio-Luddite movement. This is real. Bio-Luddites are, are growing out of the anti-technology and the deep ecology movements. These are opponents of reproductive medicine, critics of corporate control of biotechnology, and so on. And in some cases, these bio-Luddites and these right-wing conservatives have actually built alliances with one another to try to promote bans on surrogate motherhood, genetically modified foods, stem cell cloning, and human genetic enhancement. Now, clearly, there will and there are Unitarian Universalists on all sides of these transhuman and post-human discussions. We UUs believe human beings should be able to create our own future on the basis of human powers, of reason, and compassion, regardless of those sacred texts that say we shouldn't. Think about it. We were the ones who embrace LGBTQI folks and fight against racism and sexism in our daily work because we went against the, the grain of the traditions. But we use must bring distinctive concerns to the transhuman and posthuman tables of the near future. We need to be at those tables having these conversations. We need to bring our concerns about equal access to the benefits of this technology. We need to bring our concerns about safety and their effects on the quality of life to that conversation. We need to bring vigilance to examine the values of the people who use transhuman technologies and augmentations. We need to bring our concerns about the motivations and power centers of the techno-utopians. While many techno-utopians may be comfortable with the prospect of people in the developed world living 500-year lifespans, while people in the developing world may still be poor and sick. There is a small movement of UU transhumanists but I believe that we will not leave those ethical questions unturned. We need to focus on how these advances can meet the real needs of people around the world, many of whom who still don't have clean water, shelter, or a decent wage. It is my hope that UUs will engage with and be critical of the religious dimension of the transhumanist idea the promise of immortality, of superhumans, or even magical abilities of a coming time, of apocalyptic change, and possible techno-rapture wrapped in science and reason. See, it's going to be harder to have that debate now when we don't just simply have dogma of religion. Now we'll have the technocrats and the techno-utopians describing what is possible and what is desirable. So the one thing that has become clear to me about this topic is that transhumanism and advanced capitalism are two processes that value progress and efficiency. Advanced capitalism and transhumanism value progress and efficiency above everything else. 
and the former as a means to power and the latter as a means to profit. Our human bodies are in the middle of these debates. Advanced capitalism is going to have to yield, in my opinion, to a new kind of social democracy with more clearly delineated and explicit human values to provide a safer container for these profound changes that are coming our way. We need a safe container to have these conversations. While we stand, where we stand on the questions of social justice, friends, though, and where we stand on the climate crisis has never been more important. These reports that are coming out talking about 12 years, 12 days, it sounds like a crisis to me, amen? It's so important that we be at the table having these conversations about the future. Technology doesn't allow us to escape these questions. It doesn't permit political neutrality. In fact, the contrary is true. Our politics, our values, our morals have never been more important. Radical technologies are simply a fact. They are here and more are coming. They will not fix our mortality, but they will, or, or they won't fix our morality, but they will certainly define our values. And we have to ask our question as I close, is our faith up to the challenge? Is our faith up to this challenge? Are you up to it? Blessed be. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.